This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. This is a best of episode featuring portions of conversations that I've had with U.S. Navy SEALs and U.S. Army Special Operators. Enjoy. Andy Stumpf. Andy and I first met in BUDS where we went through Hell Week together and then both went to SEAL Team 5. This is a portion of a conversation that we had up in Montana over this past year. Here he is, Andy Stumpf. Talking about getting out of the military, talking about the, the transition and being connected to that SEAL past and having that be, and you talked about something that you struggle with a, a bit. Like people are listening to you when you go to a leadership thing because you were a SEAL, I think you said. Um, but if that gives you a platform to help help people add value to their lives, um, then why not? So you talked about that that struggle. It can be a worthwhile tool, but you, I think you have to be careful not to become that persona. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, if, if that's what gets people to pay attention to a lesson that I think would be impactful in their life, that's great. Yeah. But you have to be able to detach yourself from that and be somebody outside of the seal, which is just a job title. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. I think it's, uh, it's important to, to build on any foundation and whether it's successes or failures, you don't have to just build on successes. You can obviously build on failures. You have to. There's, there's My no entire other life choice. is built upon failures. <laughs> it's a very easy formula. Just keep going. Yeah, just keep building. It's keep like building. But learn some lessons along the way. Maybe email. get smarter about just it. Just keep swimming. Oh, geez. Uh, but it is. But it, it's interesting. And I saw that when I was getting out. I saw that. Um, I was very lucky, I think, to go to a, uh, a shore duty when I was getting out because I could take a breath. I wasn't taking guys downrange anymore. I wasn't responsible for them, their families. The yep. mission the mission was push-ups and sit-ups at Bud's. Like, yep. And the phases have that covered. Like they didn't really need me to do it. Largely. Uh, yeah, they've, they've got it. Um, but I got to see people that wanted to come back and give tours and, uh, hey, can I get my buddy in here and show them or my boss or whatever? And I always... Absolutely. You know, uh, and I thought it might be a little bit iffy with the senior level leaders. I'd give them a good time to come yeah. uh, when those guys weren't there. Uh, <laughs> Cause I always, you know, when I want to hook a buddy up, but I saw that uh, maybe they were a little too closely connected to that past rather than building upon it. It was like their feet were stuck in it as cement. So the foundation was yeah. built upon, it was cement and their feet were stuck in it. Um, so that was very clear. I saw that it didn't take too much for <laughs> too much, uh, introspection or too much experience for me to see that that was the case with a, a lot of people. And, uh, it was very easy for me to decide not to be that way, which was also very cool. Someone sent me a clip and it was Rogan on the, on his podcast talking about Jack Carr, the author, and he never mentioned seal. And I forget who the guest was, but they talked about it for like a minute. And Joe was like, yeah, these books are awesome, blah, blah, blah. But he never mentioned seal. And uh, somebody sent it to me. I Probably think just forgot. Another, <laughs> he might not know. <laughs> he <laughs> he might not know. Uh, but uh, I forget who sent it to me, but they said, hey, this is so cool. He didn't mention Seal once. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man, that is that is really cool. Um, but uh, but I think that's something that people, you know, it's a very you know real thing. You want to build on that foundation and do it in a, a way that's appropriate and helps you move forward. And I think you're doing that. And you're sharing this experience. You're sharing this Trying. journey. You're helping people. Um, which I don't know wise. how many people I'm helping, but <laughs> <laughs> it's cathartic for you me. You got these awesome hats and t-shirts. Like, it's not helping anybody. It's good. It, it closes them. It keeps their head warm in the winter. There's all sorts of uh, things. You don't know shit about yeah, hats. If you like think that. it keeps their head warm in the winter. Do you have beanies? No. Maybe you should. All right. Good idea, Fairy. Right. I'll put it on the list. 
<laughs> oh man. Um, but, uh, so this last year was a busy one. Um, but when for you me saw or you forever for us, uh, the country, um, so many, gosh, what a crazy time to be living, bringing up kids, um, political situation, just, uh, so what a crazy time to be living. But, uh, we have this period in August with the Afghanistan withdrawal. Like, what did you think about when you when you saw that? Did you were you thinking about it in the lead up to, uh, or you, or did you just start thinking about it when you saw the actual withdrawal taking place and seeing uh, everything happening at the airfield? Like, how how much thought were you thinking? Were you putting into it? Let's say from January of last year up until August, and then when August hit, um, what were your thoughts and feelings behind how we got out of there? Wasn't putting a lot of thought into it up until it actually started happening. Um, I don't know anybody who I served with in Afghanistan that was surprised by the result. The only thing that surprised me was with the velocity with which it happened. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're sitting in the seat, when you are the person in charge, you own what happens, regardless if it's your administration or the previous administration to put together the plan. Um, and the reality is what had happened in Afghanistan spans multiple administrations, whether it's surges or owning more terrain, which means then you need to have more assets. I mean, if you look at the amount of shit that we left behind, if we had left the country or left only a small force there in late 2001, 2002, 2003, like it would be a completely different story, right? I worked a lot with Afghan partner forces and Iraqi partner forces. And uh, I'm, I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm not surprised that it fell. I knew that it was going to fall. Anybody that worked at a very close level with those forces, except for the ones that were much more highly trained and refined from a lot of the tier one units. It's like, yes, this is eventually what's going to end up happening. I think it was a complete clusterfuck of how they went about it. And it seems as if they committed to a plan that they probably knew was not right and they were unwilling to make a change on the fly. And I don't understand that. And that is where I will hold the person who was in the seat at the time responsible for that. If you're the head honcho and the plan's going to shit, it's on you. Don't try to blame it on the previous administration because if you inherit their plan and it sucks, change it. Or adapt. Or adapt. Hey, we're getting our asses kicked here by trying to do this. Let's maybe think about this a little bit more and do this a little bit safely. Maybe we could get some of these people, you know what I mean? Like there's so many ways it could have gone and I don't know why they committed themselves to going the way that they did and that's on them and they should be held accountable for it. But I'm not surprised that the country fell, but in the back of my mind, even from my first deployment there, I was never there to liberate Afghanistan and fight for them. They knew and know that at some point they were going to have to do it for themselves. And if they were unwilling and unable to do so, I mean, we as a country, we can't stay there forever and do it for them. So, yeah, it's a mess. Yeah, it seems like we had we had almost 20 years to plan for that, to plan for an exit. Yeah. And then you've heard people talk about rushing to your death. Like, take a breath, look around, make a call. Yeah, like this plan says. sucks. This plan is not working. Mm -hmm. Somebody needs to make a change. And it seems like at the highest levels, they were committed to that plan. And I hate to say this, but it almost seems like they were committed to that so they could blame it on the previous administration, which is idiotic in my mind. And when that plan fell to shit and people lost their lives for it, they should be held accountable, which I don't think anybody has been. Nope.
nope, no one's been held accountable for that entire time frame. Strategic for strategic failures. I mean, uh, somebody they, should be they, held accountable for us being there a decade too long. How about that? Uh, I don't know who to hold accountable for that, but there's a lot of failures along the way. Yeah. And those guys keep failing up. Yeah. You know, keep failing up. That's um, the way you do it. So until people start getting their figurative heads lopped off, uh, those below, below them that are careerists. So there's definitely a difference between someone who's in the profession of arms and the career of arms are yeah. very different. No one's ever heard of a career of arms because it's a profession or it should be. Yeah. Um, so this careerist type people who become politicians at some point along the way and they see, oh, if I want to keep going on this path, guess what I have to do? X, Y, and Z. Uh, unless those people who make the mistakes up top get their heads lopped off because that's accountability and you get somebody in there who can do the job. And then those below say, oh, I better step up and do this job or maybe this isn't my sport. Yep. Maybe I need to go off and do something else. Um, and uh, it's just so many good people get out along the way because they don't want to deal with that, those politics uh, because that doesn't, they want to turn in to those guys that they see above them in the chain of command who have become politicians. Um, because really, what does it take to stay in military? Eh. You know, you, uh, you don't pop positive on a, on a piss test. Um, no DUI. Don't beat your spouse and don't get too many DUIs. Uh, maybe now it's one back in the day. I feel like now it's one and done. Yeah. Now it's one and done. Um, so those three things, um, and you move up, especially when those around you who are probably better suited for the job are getting get out. out. Yeah. Sergeant Major Kyle Lamb. Kyle served for over 20 years in the United States military 15 of those were spent at 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta, better known as Delta Force. In 1993, he was involved in the Battle of Mogadishu, later depicted in the film and the book Black Hawk Down. Here's a portion of our conversation. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Uh, and this is kind of, this isn't completely on topic, but the other day um, I was getting ready, putting together a presentation and one of the things that came up was this, the sheepdog versus the wolf. Mm -hmm. You've heard that. Mm -hmm. And it kind of bothers me. So I, I sent a text out to a bunch of my friends. I said, are you a sheepdog? Are you a wolf? And right here in front of everybody in the world, you got to give me your choice. So I've changed over time with this one because I, when I first heard this analogy as well, I thought about it and I thought about, okay, uh, I, I, I read the person that, you know, came up with it ish, you know, it's probably been around a little bit. Um, but I thought, no, wolf, I'm, I've, I've had this, this connection to wolves since I was a little kid. So I didn't put too much thought into it other, other than, Hey, I'm a hunter and that's what I do. Like that was, that was it. And then I'm like, wolf. And this was, let's say 2002 or something like that, maybe even before that. Um, and the guy that, I, that had asked me this question or that I was discussing this with was the Vietnam Project Delta guy. Um, uh, and, and so he said, well, think about that a little, through that a little more. Um, so if the, the wolf is the enemy and you are that wolf, then, or you're identifying with that, then you'll eventually become that enemy. So maybe that's putting a little too much thought into it. I don't know. I just went immediately to the, I am a hunter. That is what I do. I go out there and this is my calling. I'm a wolf. But then I understand the sheepdog analogy, the protector standing at the gate of the, as the sheepdog type of thing. So I think, yeah. you know, there are, there are different ways to think about it without one, you know, depending on how much thought you're putting into it and what perspective you're, you're bringing to it, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I, it was very interesting because 
almost every law enforcement guy that I said this to, they said that they are a sheepdog. And almost every military dude said they're a wolf. And when I thought about it, it started to bother me because I was thinking, am I a bad person? Because I really identify with the wolf versus the sheepdog. And then I talked to one of my buddies and he goes, cops are different than we are, which I don't want to believe, but it really is true. Our missions are different. Law enforcement guys are there to protect those that they're sent to protect. Military people are not. Military people have a mission and they are sent to conduct that mission. And the mission is not to be a sheepdog. The mission is to go out and capture or kill. No matter who you are in the military, it's either a capture or kill mission. If you're out handing out MREs to people that don't have food, okay, that's, that's a different thing. That's a, a humanitarian mission. But a military mission is to capture or kill bad guys. And then I started going literally like into the analogy, a wolf or a sheepdog. Wolves take care of their pack. Mm. Sheepdogs could care less about their pack. They are hired by the owner to do a job, which is to protect the innocent. Wolves feed themselves. Sheepdogs wait till their master gives them food. Oh, you put more thought into this. You've taken this to the next level now. Dude, I, do, I've got I like a, it though. I like I got it. A no, I've got my notebook here somewhere and it is full <laughs> of all these analogies. Uh, the baddest dog on the planet has the biting pressure of like 700 pounds. Mm. The wolf is like 1500 pounds of biting pressure. So they say, um, wolves will do anything for their pack to feed their pack. Now, one of the bad things is maybe wolves kill for entertainment sometimes. Um, and I would say that if I'm a wolf and I'm fighting other wolves, there's probably some wolves out there that I'm fighting that are that person that kills for entertainment, like a terrorist or whatever. So I have changed my, I, I am proud to tell you that I want to remain a wolf because I'm, I want to go and search out and destroy the enemy. I don't want to stand, stand there waiting to be attacked. I want to go capture or kill the bad guys where they sleep. That's exactly what I said so, back in 2002, or maybe it was even before 2001, 2002, maybe it was 2000, but it was somewhere around that time frame anyway, where people started to talk about that analogy more. Um, and that's what I, that's exactly what I said. So I'm glad we're on the same page. Whew. Man, yeah, well, so I wouldn't want to uh, failed your test right there. That would have been a horrible for me. I wouldn't, have, you, I wouldn't sleep. You started, tonight. Yeah. You started to go down a road and I'm like, this bro is getting old and soft. I don't know. What's yeah. <laughs> but we brought you back to the, yeah. So the, um, on killing and, and those yeah. books are, um, they're great books. Everybody should read them, but when you read it, make sure that you don't read it and take it absolutely to heart. You need to find in your heart what you feel as a warrior, because Dave Grossman has one opinion and I have another. Mm -hmm. We're both right because that's his opinion and I have mine. And if you're a law enforcement officer, please don't be offended. I'm not saying anything bad about you. You do, you do what you're supposed to do in your position. Yeah. Probably, which probably saying. isn't hunting and killing, um, in the yeah. law enforcement yep. profession, or you're probably not going to be around too much longer. Um, so, whereas that is our profession in, in special operations, it's hunting and killing. Like that is the base, right? That's the foundation. Dom Rasso. 
Dom is a former Navy SEAL who, after leaving the military, founded Dynamis Alliance. You can go to crusheverything.com to find out what he has going on. And right here, this is one of his blades. This is the Razorback, which is featured in my novels. And this right here, also featured in the novels, is the Combat Flathead, one of my favorites. In this clip, we discuss our experiences in Iraq. So you make it through, make it through Buds, and first team is Team 2. Team 2. And this is, this is where I cross paths with you. Uh, what year do you get to that Team 2? Team 2 was 2001. 2001. 2001. Yeah. When did September 11th? Where, where were you? September I was 11th? in the Buds classroom at September 11th. So okay. What phase? Uh, it was first. First phase? Yes, yeah, first phase. Yep, just sitting there. Buildings, you know, went down and literally in Buds. Because... The pre 9-11 decision, like, this is what I'm going to go do. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the commitment, like, you hear the stories, you ask questions, like, where are we going? When are we getting in the fight? How can we go do what we're signing up for? And then having that realization of being like, oh, you know, we're actually at war now. Yeah. Like, it solidified it for everybody that was in that era, mm-hmm. I think, you know, especially in that class. Yeah. So that was an interesting spot to be in. But, yeah, that's right about when it happened. And did an instructor come in, or did uh, was somebody teaching at the time and get pulled out? I can't. Told I think might have, they might have even turned the TV on. Yeah, you know, it was like that big of a deal. Where like we don't watch anything on the TV, and they're, right. they're like, "Hey, they flick the TV on." They're like, "Look what's going on." No, like, this just got really real. It was a sobering moment in the buds yeah. classroom. You know, like, you have all the instructors. You see it on the instructor's face. You're like, "Oh, okay, there's something real going on right now." You know, and and then that's when we were like, "Okay, we're here. This is why we're here." You no, know, and that, that's the whole vibe that just kept right. my entire career. You know, I showed up to team two and we hit the ground running. First deployment was right to Afghanistan. Yeah. It was like, boom, we're in it, right? Right there. And we kind of knew working up to that, that our our workup was that intense. So as a new guy, I didn't just come into a platoon being like, oh, we don't know really know where we're going. Yeah. All the guys that had been there for a while be like, hey, you're a new guy, but you better act like you're going to war because we are. Yeah. So we always had that intensity of like, this is real. Right. Don't screw up. We're here for a reason, yeah. and we were all fighting for that spot on Team 2 to get that deployment, right, yeah. to go to Afghanistan. So we tried really hard, and I feel like our platoon specifically was just adamant about, you know, doing uh, DAs, doing direct assaults, doing room clearance. I mean, we did that so much, even at Team 2, mm-hmm. which previous to that, that was kind of rare, yeah. doing it that much, that much of an emphasis. But knowing that that's what we're going to do, and we that's exactly what we did. We went to Afghanistan, and... First operation was clearing however many compounds. I want to say 50 different connecting compounds all in this giant village. It was just our, wow. it was our platoon kicking down all those doors systematically. Wow. People were getting shot. We were finding drugs, finding weapons, finding caches. I mean, it was an all-day event. Right, at, uh, right as the sun comes up, flying right into the poppy fields in the Chinook, loading the ramp down, running right to the target with a platoon, Spent all day clearing and then leaving right out of the same poppy field. That was my first operation. No kidding. Literally going into tunnels, you know, passing wheelbarrows of, you know, marijuana and all this stuff that was being built. It was a, it was a drug farm, clearly. Yeah. And yeah, I just remember that being like, wow, okay, we're, this is real. We're in it. No you know, way. I don't know how many weeks we were there for. I want to say like a week and a half or two weeks before that op kicked off. No way. So yeah, that was my first experience. That is, and did you do more of those throughout that deployment? That's all that was. That's all our deployment was. If we weren't doing that on a direct action, we were doing the presence patrols, which mm, we all loved doing wow. uh, mobility. Okay. And so we were going from FOB to FOB. Uh, we were going uh, from Bagram to Kandahar. 
we did that trip multiple times and we would shoot off into different villages. And then uh, Hindu Kush, right? It was in Hindu Kush where it was uh, Deshopan. De huh. You know, we were in that area, spent a lot of time in that area, which was just sketchy. You know, I've, I've told that story before about, you know, that being the first time that really we got blown up, you know, in a convoy with a, the vehicle in front of me ended up getting shredded and the tailpipe hit me in the head. Um, that, that was gnarly. That, were you in the turret? I was in the turret. I was the number one truck for our convoy. So I was in the lead truck on everything that we did. So, you know, the, the mm. tension that's behind that because you're just waiting. Um, I had a lot of that, okay, I'm, it could go off at any moment for like the first month of the deployment. Uh -huh. And eventually I just let all that tension go mm -hmm. being like, okay, if this happens, like I just, just hopefully it takes me quick, yeah. you know, and it just goes off. But uh, rolling around in that presence patrol, that was an interesting operation where we had gone really deep in and we thought there was a pass. We ended up finding out like Apaches flew over and then they were like, it's unpassable, but we wanted to see. So we were like all the way up into the crevice, as far as you could possibly get up in there. And it was blocked. And so we knew, I was like, we have to turn around now. It would go right back through. We, were, yeah, we knew there was guys trying to set up on us already. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this is imminent. This is gonna happen. And so when we turned everybody back around, we ended up making a little bit of a campsite. And when that campsite was set up, we knew we had to continue through, but there was uh, the foreign nationals with us. Mm. And then there was the army group that was supporting okay. the foreign nationals. So they were connected. Yeah. We ended up doing the interop and connecting on the way up. Okay. So we had intersected. So when we're leaving, we knew that these guys set up on us at this point. They wow. were like talking about it. The ambush is set. They're waiting for you to come out. There's only one road out, you know? So now we're like talking uh, to, amongst each other and like, all right, we're going to lead this crew out. You know, we're going to be the number one truck because we get the navigation. And as the new guy, and this being my first deployment, I'm feeding off of my guys. And I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to follow your guys' lead. But I knew they were upset about this because they had known that we were getting set up on. Yeah. And there was some very gray things that were going on between the foreign nationals and the chatter. So like where that was coming from and how they were getting their information, yeah. still to this day, I don't really know. Yeah. But ultimately what happened was the fact that we knew that we were gonna get set up on and our guys were pretty upset that we were gonna be the first ones to go out. Uh. And be that as it may, the decision finally was made after about an hour of really arguments. Mm. Like guys were actually physically yelling at each other about this idea. Yeah. And the leadership worked it out where the foreign nationals were gonna go and then it was gonna be the army guys and then it was gonna be us. Okay. And so that was the decision that was made. And as we were going through probably about a good 45 minutes to an hour on that route, um, you know, just the explosion went off, boom. Just when I thought it was us at first, you know, it was that, like it felt like everything just shook. And then I had that piece of the tailpipe smack the top of my helmet. Dang. And so I had to do the whole, like, you know, right. the whole check. Yeah. And I did that for a second. Like, did I have any shrapnel in my Holy. neck? And we were just yelling contact. Of course, I had no idea where the contact yeah. was coming from, but that's what we had drilled. Like contact, right. where, you know? And, you know, I'm checking my guys. We're all communicating with each other. Dang. You're right, you're right. Dust was just, you're breathing in dust at this point. You can't see anything in front of you. Wow. And when the dust settled, you know, as we started to go, because we knew it was an ID. Mm -hmm. So it was like, don't get out of your trucks, don't move. Everybody froze in place. 
And when the dust settled, the, the army Humvee in front of me was just shred to pieces and flipped over. Wow. And uh, the interpreter was instantly killed because he was on the wheel well. It ended up being a double stack uh, Italian mine hmm. that was in the road. And Jeez. there were seven Hiluxes of the foreign nationals ahead of mm-hmm. that army truck. Now, yep. do the math, man. Yep. You know, I'll let you, you know, think about that yourself, right? Uh-huh. It's just the coincidence of that being the next vehicle and then them going off. So there was a long process that ensued at that point. We had the EOD guys deploy. They went and searched the road. We were trying to figure out what was going on, what our next moves were. I mean, I'm thinking there's secondaries all over the place. Right. Why wouldn't there be? Mm-hmm. I'm waiting for bullets to start ripping in yep. into the dust. You know, that's what I was worried about because right. I was on the turret. So I'm just scanning. I've got my, no, I'm just looking. I mean, I didn't. You're on a 50? I'm on a 50. Yeah, I had the Modus, which I love that thing. I had an intimate relationship with my, my Modus. And that eventually led to, you know, nothing else followed on, but we had the air support immediately came over. Uh, we had all the guys deployed looking for secondaries and scanning uh, with, with metal detectors. And ultimately we ended up having to wait to, to get that helo out of there, get uh, medevac mm-hmm. out. You know, they all got called in and then we left that day. But that was probably the, the first like real interaction that I had. Yeah. Um, we had, with, with an explosive anyway, you know, in, in team two. Yeah. So there was a lot of that already prepping me for where I was about to go, you know, going to the command and, and doing that. Yeah. Because I feel like IEDs were just a part of the, the flow. Right. You know, IEDs just became a, like, you know, every week we were seeing right. some, some of them blew themselves up, you yeah. know. But yeah, anyway. Dude, that's wild. And you did more of those patrols? Did you ever work with those, uh, those uh, the post-nation force or again? I don't think that we linked back up with them at that point that I can remember off the top of my head. We may have, I'm just not recalling it right now. Jeez. And so, so that's your first team two deployment and you come back and you do another workup and deployment at at two? Do another workup, another deployment at two. And where'd you guys go for Uh, that one? Because this is where I meet up with you. This is where I hear about you for the first time. I think we passed each other in the hallway a few times. We're in different, uh, different troops uh, at team two. But I hear about you, and I might have, you know, a lot of time has passed since then. But I thought that I first heard about you was being in a, you being in a gun truck on the 50, and I thought it was Iraq, uh, and an, on an, an alleyway holding security, and somebody, bad guy came out, and you, like, light him up. Yeah. I think that's the first time I heard about, yeah. about you. And uh, it was people, everyone was like, oh man, awesome. And uh, <laughs> like, who was it, you know? And they said, you, and I was like, oh man. That's, I think that's the first time that, other than in, like, in passing, you know, that, uh, that I re- distinctly remember hearing about you. Is, yeah, uh, is that, was that Iraq? Was that, that was that Afghanistan. Happened? That was Afghanistan, yeah, okay. Yeah, that was Afghanistan, okay. yeah. And uh, that, was, that was an interesting circumstance as well. You know, we had, I was so upset that I was not on the assault. Uh-huh. So upset. But as a new guy, I'm kind of just like gritting my teeth, like, all right, I didn't get picked to go inside the building today. Uh, and again, you have all the veterans that are mm-hmm. in there that have been there for a while that have been doing this, but they wanted me on the gun because I was the number one truck. And because the number one truck was in, we had to push past the main entry point. So when we pushed past the main entry point, 
they needed me up on the turret to cover down on everything that was past the entry point. So there was no way of getting out of, out of it for me. Yeah. Everybody else in the middle trucks could kind of cheat it. They could come out of the yeah. turret because they didn't have everyone, they're staring at a wall. Okay. Um, so I just was in that position. It was my gun. I just got <laughs> luck of the draw. But uh, I ended up in the middle of the assault. I had a dude with a gun run around the flank of the, uh, the building and he just, it literally like the clouds parted and just, he just came around the corner. I'm like, I didn't go on the assault. This is my moment. <laughs> like, Here, get on the gun. You know? Yeah. Um, or else if we hadn't been covered down on that, that guy would have came right up the middle. But yeah. Yeah, that, that was, that was that circumstance. I think it was the same. That's one exactly it. That's yeah. the exact story that I heard from people. Nobody's talking about it, you know, yeah. cause if you weren't there, you know, you're like, oh man, if you weren't in a fight and a fight happened, especially if it was from your team, you know, you know, who's involved, what happened. And I distinctly remember people talking about, about you in that, in that case. And, uh, and how, how amazing that was. Um, and that is- uh, That's funny, yeah. Was, <laughs> that, was my, that was my first real time, um, like that close. Yeah. You know, and I had other circumstances on that. And to think that that was team two right. at the time, yeah. it was kind of a mind blowing and, and kind of different way of thinking too, because really team two was kind of in a little bit of a lull before we mm. really start going back overseas with, with Afghanistan and Iraq. So for us to get that much experience at Team 2 for my mm. first deployment, it made my whole career very real. Interesting. It wasn't like I was sitting around doing anything. All this training is absolutely real. I mean, I had hand-to-hand confrontations at Team 2. Wow. I had multiple engagements at Team 2. Yeah. And so that was before I even got to the command. That's wild. You know, it really was. It really was. I, I'm very thankful for the experience that I got there, and I'm thankful for the guys that I looked up to as well. Uh, so many of them, Goody, Ben, uh, guys that I was really close to me that guided me along the path yeah. being like, you got to be in this position. You know? yeah. so. Andrew Arabito. Vito is a former Navy SEAL who founded Half-Face Blades when he got out of the military. Also the apparel line Kill Bad Dudes and the founder of Warpaw Wine. If you've read the novels, you will know that this blade in particular in the first novel, The Terminalist, uh, gets put to use in the swamps of Florida. This is the Carambito right here. Pretty brutal looking. And then in my third novel, Savage Sun, this is the Hunter Skinner. And this is from a commemorative line, limited edition that we did a couple years ago. And this is 01 from that line. Very cool. Here's a portion of our conversation. So then you get back and you do, uh, what, get a jump in another platoon? Yeah, did another platoon, Southeast Asia, um, you know, Guam, and then... Uh, Philippines and Indonesia. Oh, nice. Did cool. you go to an outstation in, in PI? Did you go to the Southern uh, We were in, we, uh, I, we dropped by like Ho, Holo and there's Tawi Tawi. I didn't get down yeah. there. And then was in Palawan for a little while and then went up to outside of Bitung in Indonesia. Tiny little spot wow. way out in the middle of nowhere. Absolutely incredible little place. Teaching nice. some people up there and, you know, diving in the ocean every day. We stayed at a little dive resort in the middle of nowhere, eating fresh fish and teaching some locals. You know, it's pretty amazing. Oh, nice. Right. Once again, taxpayer funded. You know, yeah. you want to go back? You want to take that flight today? That's pretty pricey. That's <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, I can, you know, it's cool is since I've gotten out, I've, you know, hopped on Google Earth and it's such an amazing thing and gone back and looked at the places I was around the world, nice. either deployed, whether it's Talifar and finding the little castle in the middle of the city, finding where I was doing sniper ops, you know, like oh, wow. trying to find buildings where I was at overseas and even zooming in and finding that little tiny that little tiny dive resort in the middle of nowhere. And then you just zoom out and you realize like your travels have been great. You know what I mean? And you can find these cool places. I mean, you go to Iraq and find, you know, or, or Afghanistan where I was and find our little tiny base and then find 
the mountain where we did Overwatch and find the areas where I was shooting at people with guns. And you can find these places. And it's so wow. cool, man. Yeah. Well, I know what I'm doing the rest of the afternoon now. Dude, it'll blow your mind. Not, uh, I have not done that. Usually I'm zooming in on places where I haven't been, especially as an author, you know, trying to like <laughs> yeah. put together like distances and is this going to work and then going to street yeah. view and like trying to piece all that together. But yeah. I haven't really gone back to places that I've already been and, and, uh, and gone through it again. It's so pretty I, cool, man. Yeah. I guess I'm not getting any writing done the rest of the day. I'm just going to do some uh, <laughs> research on, on Google earth. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and then, uh, then, so is the next one Afghanistan then is the next, uh, yeah. so from there I went over to, uh, team one, uh, checked in with Dan DL and, um, I guess I guess his name, Dan Luna, um, I think checked in with him. Yeah. Yeah. He's good. He's, <laughs> that's, that's always my public. check. I'm like, do they have a public Instagram account? Yeah, I always, okay. I've always started saying names and I'm like, okay, no, yes. Okay. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, it's public. Um, checked with him, uh, to go to Afghanistan. And that was, you know, one of the greatest platoons I've ever had. The best platoon I've had, man. Good people, good leadership, you know, with, with Dan. And uh, got to go to Afghanistan. Got to go to, you know, Indian country. Is that, were you doing a lot of the uh, sniper stuff out there? Or where were all the pictures? Dude, everything, everything, man. A lot of it was, uh, you know, went into Kandahar, did ops out of there. And then small small contingent of group of us went up to uh, like Anaconda and was just doing uh, raids up there and, and finding, you know, medium value targets and bomb builders and just going to the areas that were full, fully Taliban controlled and, and picking fights and disrupting and then working with the local, local people as well. What are you doing in those, those pictures that you post every now and again that, uh, you got the mohawk going. You got your face painted. Yeah, just, just uh, doing picking fights, man. Is that Afghanistan or are those Iraq yeah, too? That's Afghanistan. That's Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, we were so far out there, you know. It really it was it was just us. It's not like we were near a big base, and it was like a tiny little fob, you know what I mean? So it was okay. Once we, you know, we're done there, and we were flying back, we all cut our hair <laughs> somewhat. My beard Clean was up. short enough that I didn't need to cut it. You know, it was bad enough. <laughs> it was probably in rags and still Slunchy had hair enough. on my face. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah, that was, Afghanistan was amazing. Oh man. And were you working with any army units out there? Or was it just you guys? Uh, no, we were with fifth, fifth group, fifth group, fifth group guys. There's probably uh, maybe t- 10 of us in that group and maybe 15 fifth group guys. And I believe seventh group was took over for them as well. We worked a little bit of seventh group guys. And when you're thinking back on those deployments of that time in, in Afghanistan, uh, is your plan at that point to, to stay in and keep crushing or what are you, what are you thinking about what you're doing up there? Are you thinking about things, uh, like, Hey, what are we still doing here after all this time? Are you thinking about that next target or are you at, what are you thinking about when you're out there getting after it? Planning um, missions? Next target. Hey, when can we go out the next? And if I can stack more bodies than my friends, <laughs> you know what I mean? it's competition based. <laughs> competition based uh and so at that point are you thinking you're staying in like this is what you love to do yeah you know uh, that three platoons deep and that was such a good platoon um i figured i'd do lpo sl- lpo slot i kind of got you know pushed back on that so i when i came back from that i went to uh, uh trade at and ran mar ops there so from there then i was going to do an lpo slot but i ended up catching up on surgeries i had broken my nose a few times and flat fell off a roof in Afghanistan and, and broke my nose again. So did that surgery, ended up breaking a bunch of my fingers in training, all my fingers in training. And that was a pretty significant surgery. And that was about 
nine, 10 months before the end of my EOS. So they were like, Hey, you want to do LPO slot? So I was slotted to go do an LPO. And then that happened. And I was like, man, caught up. What happened to your fingers? Surgeries. Oh, I was, I was running a, uh, 12 dudes, um, doing BBSS and I had, uh, Blackhawk came down, you know, Seahawk, whatever they call them cruising along. I went out and held the ladder for the first five guys up the ladder, went back through the doorway, turned around and, um, they hadn't cleared the ladder and they were starting to move. So I stepped through the, the main ship hatch opens outwards. I stepped through it. I was going to clear the ladder and I just, you know, as I'm running everything, I'm like, I just count my guys over and over again to make sure we're all good. So I turned, I counted my guys, I turned back and it never had latched that oh. whole ship door. So the wind from the Blackhawk got behind that and it was 20, oh. you know, 20 feet in the air and it was slamming on me. And I put my hand against the wall and yanked my leg out of the door, you know, cause you have to step through. And I caught all my fingers on the, in the him side inside. Dude. And so I was, it was nuts. So I was wearing these gloves. This guy has given me They're from Neptech, I believe. Huh. Um, and they were Kevlar reinforced on this side, not this side, or the, the palm was Kevlar layers. And they're small enough. You can faster, you can faster up. They're small enough. You okay. can still manipulate your gun safety. So I still yeah. had them on. So I just took a knee and I was like, Oh, you mother. And I was like, you know, it bounced, it bounced back open, but it's a, you know, it's a, probably a 400 pound steel yeah. ship hatch, probably shutting at 30 miles an hour. Dude, you know, I'm surprised you didn't like take them off. Oh man. Cause it's, it's, it's watertight, you know, it's a sealed yeah. door. <laughs> um, so yeah, for those I, like, been on ships before or even seen a picture of oh, them in a movie, like that's, that's serious. It's not like slamming your hand in the, uh, like a wooden no. door inside your house. No. Oh. They, and they, they have a name for the other hatches. Like that's the main ship hatch, the big door, the other hatches that open up, you know, that fall, they call it hatch hand. Like it happens all the time on ships where <laughs> those hatches fall onto somebody's hand and just crush their fingers. But this was like the main ship hatch. So I took the glove off and the back side was, you know, every finger was broken, cut and the meat ripped down. And then on the front side, it was all split. The pressure had split it, but it didn't cut my tendons on this side. So I still got, still had flexion. Yeah. So it was just a miserable surgery. And it was like, you know, metal in all different directions in my fingers. And I lost, oh. you know, tendons, tendons on the backside, couldn't do tendon grafts, so I can't straighten them. So they're, I just, you know, Dang. I have an ugly hand here, but is I got it, all my strength back and all my flexion. Yeah. And, you know, is there metal still in there? Do they, are they, is there something no, reinforced they in there? Took it all out. Took it all out. Dang, dude. And that was to, miserable. Oh, yeah, that doesn't sound good. And so from there, you're, uh, so is, is that what you decide to, to move on or what? I, you know, I, that, that happened like January, March, ish my EOS was November. And I was just like th doing therapy that during that time frame, I had so much time off. Um, uh, then I masked you the time was like, yo, just do your therapy, make your own schedule. Just check in with me. So I was doing that that whole time during that time frame. I went to, you know, put myself to distilling schools and stuff like that. And like, just try to get myself career development for when I got out and I want to do other things. Um, I was just kind of burned out a little bit with catching up on a few surgeries, my hand, um, ISIS hadn't kicked off yet. I think had ISIS kicked off then out and they would have been like, Hey, come do an LPO slot. Let's go back to Iraq. I yeah. probably would have done it, but it was right. just such a lull in, yeah. in war and, um, you know, in my, in my 10 year mark. Right. And I was like, you know, I just, i they were like, Hey, you're going to get hundred percent disability. You could do a med board. When you get out, go back to your med board, get your full retirement, med retirement and stuff. So I was like, all right, that, that sounds like a good idea. I'm at 10 years, halfway through. 
Um, I think I made a smart decision. You know what I mean? Some people ask like, oh, you know, looking back, like you're saying, would you have stayed in? You know, it's such a, such a hard thing to save. Like, you know, had I gone down my L-pillar slot, maybe I would have shot in the head. You yeah. don't know, you know, fighting. So it's like yeah. at that time period of my life, you know, it was the smartest decision, especially I was 30 years old. I can start a whole nother, I could go, go back to school. I can, I have so much time left that I can start another career, you know, before I even hit 40. Yeah. Oh, so I think it was a smart decision in my part. Yeah. You know, no, and I was a good solid my, run. Yeah, it was good, man. Three, three, you know, two really good deployments, a Southeast Asia deployment. Um, I got to see it all and be with the best dudes and made that decision to punch out and start working on other things in my life. And, you know, of course I see my buddies, like the guys, you know, pushing through Mosul and I'm like, Oh, without me, come on. Yeah. You know, like, of course, <laughs> of course I want to go on vacation with the boys you know, on, on, on evil, you know, but it is what it is. And I, I, I don't regret it because you just don't know what would have happened. In that no. year. Tim Kennedy. Tim is an army special forces soldier, MMA fighter, entrepreneur, and author of the new book, Scars and Stripes. In the book and on the podcast, he talks extensively about his time in the military. Here's a clip. And I love this story, you and Mike Glover and your spotter. And for people who don't know, a spotter is a very important part of this uh, two-man sniper element, uh, especially in sniper school. And it's very, it, it's yeah. good to have a spotter that knows what he's doing, maybe even who's better at it than you are. And, yeah. uh, and your guy quits, like at your last shot. And uh, Mike Glover raises his hand and said, I'll, I'll call that wind or whatever, and walks up and calls it. And then you press that trigger and ding. <laughs> Dude, such a baller move by Mike. I love Mike. Yeah, I get to so work great. with Mike often, but he's such a great human. He is. And one of my favorite parts, parts and I, you know, it's not really like I, you don't get to point it out in the book because it's kind of understated the cat the cadre looked at mike and they're like well um you know i get one bullet i get one target if i get a first round hit i get a go at special forces sniper school at the time it was called called special tar uh, special operations target addiction course and um if i miss i'm out and uh when they asked if somebody would come and cover for me and mike glover stood up mike um they also asked mike if he would if he would bet his graduation on it. And Mike says, wouldn't change my answer. Wow. Like what a baller. Yeah. You know, to like, just look right at him and be like, bro, it's not going to change what I'm going to do here. And what I'm going to do wow. here is get a first round hit on that target. That is pretty awesome. awesome. Yeah. That's next level right there. Yeah. I love Mike yeah. down at field craft survival. He's right down the road. So I get to see him. I'm very fortunate that I get to spend some time with him here. Not, uh, not infrequently. So, yeah. um, I think yeah, another solid guy. So Brad Keys, um, who was my sniper partner, I don't name in the book. Um, guy, guy had already been to war, and um, you know, l having spent so much time as as a Spartan, it is almost indescribable how much time you spend with your sniper partner, right? Like I know how he breathes, I know how he breathes when he sleeps, I know how he smells, I know how he smells when he's stressed, I know how he smells when he's hungry. You know, like I know what his piss smells like when he's dehydrated. You know, like that is how much intimacy we have, you know, and, and as we're sitting there staring at a tree together for 14 hours, of course, we're going to talk. So I know everything about Brad. And, um, you know, that guy is, is carrying a lot of demons by the time he gets to these schools. So people look at these schools, sniper school, Sephardic, ranger school, you know, they see like go, no goes, but you forget about the individual that is physically carrying everything from war with them into these moments. 
You know, like, oh, that, that guy was a no-go at Ranger School. What a loser. What, dude, like, he lost his best friend five months ago. Cool. Mm-hmm. You want to tell him how to do a combat operation and go lead an infantry unit? Awesome. You know, like, you're an asshole. Like, the, it's really difficult to explain in peak war, you know, in 2006, 2007, 2008, where guys are now three, four deployments deep, um, even going to a school, schools are heavy. You know, guys are carrying stuff when they get there. No, that's so true. And then they carry it, yeah, from from then on and everything that they that they do. And speaking of that, the Afghanistan chapters that you write are, uh, I mean, some of the best writing that describes modern warfare, particularly as it pertains to Afghanistan, that I've I've yet read. Um, and of course, what stands out to me, a couple of things, but one of them is the way you describe um, being a sniper, like that that paragraph, the one I talked about before about the fall on the beach, and then the one about being a sniper and what you see through that scope. Um, I haven't read it described that way before. And I've read a lot of things about snipers and have a little bit of background there, but uh, that was powerful. Uh, how is that to write or to think through? Dude, that was a chapter as I'm looking over here, um, begrudgingly at my, my chamber of darkness. That was a, that was a paragraph. That was a chapter where I was crying, you know, um, I have, uh, I'm in my office right now and on the wall, a couple of rooms away is this, it's a musket. Like it's a breech loading musket mm-hmm. and um, underneath it and the date of that gunfight. And um, one of the, one of the guys that I shot, um, that was the weapon that he was carrying. It was four or 500 meters away. I can't see the weapon. Mm-hmm. And it was just a military aged man in a combat zone, in a battle, in the middle of a tick, carrying a weapon. So he goes in the dirt and um, he's ends up being in our direction of travel. And I go and recover this weapon. And it is a, it is like an eight, a late 1800s breech load musket. Yep. It was a child. Like it was a, a young man, you know, barely, barely of age to even hold a gun that weight. And, um, war, you know, war fucking sucks. Yeah. And there's another one that stood out to me. Um, there's a couple of things, but I, but, uh, one of them is this school, the enemy using a school as a base of operations, essentially as their headquarters, as their, yes, in a multi-day engagement. Um, and, uh, you talk about that in the, in the Valley of death and, and similarly, you ask if, Hey, why, why, let's let's level this thing. We have air power, you know. Let's let's destroy this thing because that's the enemy's base of operations here. And you're told no, um, and then you have a reaction to that. Um, and very similar. That stood out to me. We had a very similar thing happen in Najaf because the enemy we pushed the enemy back, and it was eleven days, two week campaign, eleven days really of pitched street fighting, and we pushed them back to the Imam Ali Mosque in Old Town Najaf, which is like one of the holiest sites in all of Islam. And uh, I asked that same question. And at this, by this point, I'm an officer. I uh, started enlisted and then became an officer. But uh, I requested to level it. And I got told the same thing you did. No. And, you know, of course, at the time, you're like, they're right there. They're all of them in there. We have the place essentially surrounded. Um, so, yeah, so that was a no. And then, of course, the peace negotiation came out and they left and we fought them again later. But, uh, but yeah, what did that feel like to ask that question and have the enemy know where they are, but then not be able to, to take it out. It, I mean, 
it's not like where they are hiding. That is where they were conducting combat operations against us. That's where they're doing their call for fires and their indirect fires. They're shooting mortars from the backside of that school. You know, a school that we built probably with agency funds. Um, and, uh, you know, hearts through the hearts and minds, we're, we're going to, we're going to win over the Afghan people. No, like the Taliban, if we build them a well, they're going to own that well. You know, if we build them a school that is going to be their headquarters. And, uh, and so it was there as, uh, it was frustrating. It was infuriating. Um, but that's just what it is. Yeah. You know, I hope that, that senior level military leaders or those on their way to be senior level military leaders and politicians read this book, um, because it really paints a picture of what it's like on the ground without this geopolitical strategic type of a lens. It's what it's like on the ground. And so they can say, Oh, here's what our, our strategy was. Here's what's happening on the ground. There's something there. There's a disconnect here. Uh, so we can stay doing this thing on the ground for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, uh, yeah. or we can get a little smarter up here, learn from history and make some better decisions, maybe hopefully going forward and turn that experience into wisdom. But I really hope that our senior level leaders read this and not just start stick with reading what they usually do, which is, you know, their, their friends memoirs who are at those senior level, you know, positions. Um, I think it's, I mean, I think it's that important. November 11th is veterans day, but at Navy Federal Credit Union, every day is Veterans Day. I've been a member since 1996, right after boot camp and right before I went to BUDS or SEAL training. Navy Federal Credit Union is for active duty veteran DOD employees and their families. They offer resources like the VA Loans Hub and Best Cities After Service. They offer veteran employment assistance partnerships with nonprofits like The Mission Continues. They're a top VA home loan lender. They offer personal finance counseling. They offer 24-7 member service and are a growing community of over 1.8 million veterans just like you. Learn more at NavyFederal.org slash veterans. Insured by NCUA, an equal housing lender. Leif Babin. Leif is a former Navy SEAL and co-author of Extreme Ownership that he wrote with Jocko Willink. He also co-founded Echelon Front with Jocko, which is a leadership consulting company. Here's a portion of our conversation. So yeah, it's awesome. You get to do your, your AOIC. For those listening, it's an assistant officer in charge uh, of a platoon. And, uh, and where did you go on that deployment? We went to Iraq. So we, uh, you know, we, we deployed with SEAL Team 3. So we had kind of a combined okay. element, cut down our workup cycle, you know, to like 11 months. And then, uh, uh, and then we got, we got shoved into the PSD mission. Yeah. So that was my, my first well. one that was, uh, was getting that on, going yep. out protecting the top five interim Iraqi government officials. You, you, you spent some time doing that as well. I did. Yeah. I got to set that up, which was interesting because uh, we had no training in that sort of thing. Um, so they just said, Hey, you got this call. We were up in Missoula at the time and something came over, you know, some message traffic or whatever said, Hey, uh, pack up and head to Baghdad. Cause you guys are going to now protect us. I think there was somebody before Alawi. There was someone who got blown up. That was supposed to be the prime minister. And I think like he, before Alawi, I think there was uh, two different, uh, interim yeah, yeah. officials that got assassinated. Okay. Yeah. So maybe it was on the second one. They're like, Hey, wait a second. Maybe we should protect these guys. Uh, who's in country. Okay. Some seals, they can do things. I saw that movie too. Uh, and, and shot us down there. So we thought that it was going to get canceled. We thought someone was going to come to their senses and be like, wait a sec. Uh, these guys have any training in that? I thought someone would ask that question, you know, well, didn't, we they, thought, didn't they put the bid? I think they put a bid out to Blackwater for it, right? <laughs> oh, really? Blackwater and that's why we ended up with it? Like a hundred million dollars per, 
per principal. And they're like, nope, SEAL teams do it. Yeah, we can do this for free. (laughs) Yeah. So that was crazy going down there. We even on the flight down, guys were, I remember guys talking about it like, hey, this is a suicide mission. I mean, guys were like, hey, we're going to stand. These two guys just got blown up. I I was remembering one, but yeah, two guys got blown up, I think, with with VVIDs, with vehicle borne uh, IEDs. And now we're going to be standing next to these guys as they, uh, as we move forward here, this doesn't look promising. Uh, and Hey, who has training in this? So no one did. Uh, so we had some guys from another East coast SEAL team come out that had been doing it in Afghanistan to kind of help us set that up. So we had two of those guys there as advisors. And I remember I had one laptop and we had a couple cars out there on loan from either the state department or the CIA, those, those Mercedes that were super tricked out that had like the, uh, I just remember them being very expensive because one of our guys took it to the gym once and ran into another car. And it was like, it's, it's a big deal when you do that. When you take one of the two like vehicles, that's going to be driving a Lowy around and you take it to the gym and, and, uh, and hit something. Um, that's not, that's not good, but, uh, Jack, I, we, we had a very similar experience with that. <laughs> we, we had relieved you guys in, in that. Uh, and look, it was, you, you guys set us up for success. And, and, uh, you know, I remember, uh, um, one of, one of the, one of the guys that, that, that y'all were working with who set, set that up with you, who just said, you know, listen, we can't, we know people are watching these guys and, um, and you know, all we can do is, is we know people are trying to kill them. All we can do is have them look at us and say, not today, not today. Yeah. We, we know didn't present that, that, that heart target, which is, we just took that to heart and the SOPs that you guys established, it really, the, what, what are the, the strength of the SEAL teams to be given a mission like that with zero training whatsoever, um, and, and you kept them alive. And then we turned, you know, we kept, we kept them alive for four months and we turned it over yeah. and the, the next generation, the next seals coming in, they kept yeah. them alive. But on the vehicle piece, we actually had, uh, one of our drivers, you know, yeah, driving a big up armor. I think it was a Toyota land cruiser. I don't know what okay, that nice. thing cost with the up armor yeah. package. It's gotta Pretty be, pricey. you know, it's gotta be like a couple hundred thousand bucks, Oh yeah. but he, he, uh, he slammed it into a Jersey barrier right oh. in the, uh, right at the gate going to the Al Rashid hotel to try to remember play well. the KBR chow hall there. Oh yeah. And, uh, I mean, just totally smashed the whole front end of it. Obviously it was a giant deal and you know, I'm, we were getting yelled and screamed at for it, but it was pretty funny. We went back the next day and one of the army guards had, had written on the Jersey barrier and this big concrete barrier. Uh, it, it said, uh, barrier one NSW zero. Uh, we nice. Really too hard on that. Oh, that's great. That's, that's fantastic. Great. I hope someone has a picture of that somewhere. Cause that's fantastic. Mike Glover. Mike is a former army special forces soldier and the founder of Fieldcraft survival located right here in Utah. In this portion of our conversation, he talks about his early days, special operations. So now you have four deployments, all of them combat, Afghanistan, three Iraq. Um, what were some of the most formative experience when you look back on that time period? Um, what were some of the most formative experiences that you had downrange? Is there one that sticks out or two that stick out? Yeah, I think, you know, 07 for me, historically, um, was the most significant, but one it's because of the height of Al Qaeda in Iraq and, and the fact that um, you know, I was part of Stanley McChrystal's Task Force 16 at, at the time, which included um, uh, SMU's range of battalion, the SIF. And we were going out as action arms, operating with one centralized intelligence um, um, element that was driving these operations against all these HVTs in Iraq. It was crushing their backs, but it was a lot of war fighting. I mean, every action arm as part of Task Force 16 which has changed numbers, obviously, throughout the years. 
but you know, McChrystal's, um, I think ideology was, Hey, there's a strategic campaign, but part of that campaign is killing and capturing, uh, in a franchise model, as many bad guys as possible. And to be part of that, where every single night, you know, 22 SAS, us, the Ranger Regiment, the SMUs were going out and having significant results in the battlefield that were just, I mean, I remember one time we had, you know, killed an HVT. His predecessor had stood up. We killed him the next night. And then uh, a week later, we had captured the guy who was his predecessor, and he didn't even know he was the predecessor. Like, he hadn't even gotten the word yet. Right. He was fine to become the, the emir of, of that particular cell because we had the intelligence that was leading like, hey, he's next in line. We need to roll these guys up. Yeah. So, you know, not only was it um, the most effective war fighting that I've seen uh, in my own personal experiences, but also as a task force, uh, but it's also when we lost a, a ton of guys. I mean, we were losing guys. Uh, I had a dog save my life uh, and, and bit a suicide bomber about 50 meters in front of me. I had all these things that were happening, but it's a significant moment where I just said, you know, this this is exactly where I need to be. Uh, we were we were operating under an SMU at the time. Uh, we were we were augmenting them, and it was just an incredible experience. And, and it just kind of set me up with the right mindset, the right um, path to, to do SMU time. And, and to go to go over, the, you know, across the fence and do some cool stuff um, in, in my own experiences. It motivated me to do that. Yeah, and that was definitely a formative time in, in special operations history, no doubt about it. And you're operating out of the green zone right there, right there with those houses along the, the river. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's uh, I was there with the yeah. uh, doing the agency stuff then. So uh, I was right there next door. You had that little airfield right there, you know, with the, with the birds and. Um, so yeah, right there in a line with, uh, with SAS, with us, with you guys, that was a crazy, that was a crazy time. And it, uh, I didn't look at it at the time this way, but, uh, now when I look back on it, well, very formative, obviously, but also laid some of the foundation, particularly for that second novel for true believer, where I'm, I'm talking about and fictionalizing, of course, uh, my experience during that time frame, right there in those same houses, uh, along the river where, where you're talking about. Um, but so, so then you come back and are you kind of like, seeing what's going on with the SMUs at that time and saying, Hey, I want to go, want to go over there. I want to be associated with this group. How can I, uh, how, how, how can I get in? You're talking to those guys. And then, then you go come back from that, that third deployment and move over there. And yep. okay. So I, I went to selection and then I came back and then, um, I went to a low vis element as part of the SMU and was, a. uh, uh, you know, I, when people say, hey, were you a cool guy in the unit? I don't really know what that means, but uh, there's a lot more cooler guys that were in SMU than me. I was in the low biz element that did a whole bunch of technical stuff. Uh, you know, a lot of it was low biz recce uh, in a low biz capacity. Uh, had really cool experiences. I had I got two additional rotations. I got to spearhead uh, with one of the squadrons, um, the re we call it a reinvasion, but we were already there, but, you know, reestablishing a base and an opportunity, um, with a unit. So I went in 09, went back down, went back and spun around and went back to Iraq. And then 10, uh, went back and went to, uh, Afghanistan and got to operate in, um, uh, Kunduz and Maza Sharif where we had no eyes on bad guys in that AO, yeah. uh, in a super impactful rotation for me where, 
man, it was insane. It was it was insane war fighting because we basically hit the hornet's nest when we got there, and it, it was a, a super productive rotation. Um, and I and I realized uh, all the benefits to bear of bringing assets and the, the most highly trained warriors on the planet, and and how it wasn't even a fair fight. I mean, we were we were just I mean dozens of bad guys every night. It was insane. It was it was awesome. That is wild. So you do that time, and then uh, was that is that your last deployment? Yeah. So no. So what happened is um, I made E eight, and I made E eight very young. I made E eight when I was thirty years. I actually made the list when I was twenty nine on what we call the blacklist, which is the SMU list, uh, and I was last guy on the order of merit in 18 series to get promoted to EA. And so at the time I was a young uh, tech recce guy and I'm like, man, you know, what do I want to do with my career? Because an E8 in special forces is the top, you know, you're, you're the big dog. You're, you're the team sergeant. And I was 29 years old. I was going to pin when I was 30, but I was a super young experienced uh, special operations guy, but nobody that I knew at the time was that young of yeah. a team sergeant. And at the time, I actually got requested by JSOC to stand up a commanders and extremist for, uh, force for Africa. So <laughs> this hadn't been done yet. I mean, we had uh, commanders and extremist forces for every AOR except for Africa because third special forces group, B, known as Bravo Company 2nd Battalion 3rd Group, B23, we were busy in the Middle East because we were training uh, Iraqis and we were we were going out every night with the premier Iraqi counterterrorism force, ICTF. And so they weren't willing to augment B-23, so they needed to stand up a new unit. So they actually recruit, they asked me and they said, hey, would you be willing to come out and act as a special forces reconnaissance expert and stand up, uh, help stand up C-210? which is the new commander's extremist force. So I flew out to Colorado. I met with a uh, command sergeant major, uh, uh, Bob Irby, who was there. And Bob Irby's a legend. He's like, man, look, what we're going to do is we're going to give you the opportunity to handpick your guys to uh, stand up uh, your special forces reconnaissance sniper detachment for the recce, and then you'll be the first to operate in Africa. And I'm like, this is too good to be true. But it was. It was true. And they, they, they gave us the opportunity. They said, these are the parameters. And me and another unit member left the unit and stood up that under JSOC's guidance. Um, you know, long story over the course of a year, we, we basically trained this got this uh, this element up. We handpicked our guys. We fired guys. We got them qualified. JSOC qualified us. And then... When Benghazi happened, September 11th of 2012, I was actually in the SMU compound doing a cross engagement, and that thing kicked off. And then we got the word, we spun up, and then me and two of my guys were the first to rip into Libya to go after, at the time, it, it, this is unclassified now, it was classified at the time, but Abu Qatala, who was the guy responsible for coordinating the attack that killed you know, Ambassador Stephen Smith and then the two yeah. uh, former Navy SEALs, Glenn Doherty and, and Tyrone yeah. Woods. So um, I think I deployed a couple, a few weeks after that. And we went into the country, stood up a counterterrorism element. That was a 12-way program. 
and went after them. And I spent the last, the, the next six months in Libya running that counterterrorism program and, and looking after those guys. No kidding. That is, that is wild. Yeah. Uh, and, and what, uh, after your, your six months there, how close did you get, or did you, what, what was is he? So two guys that were members of my, we call it team Libya, positively identified, uh, Abu Qatala. Uh, we offered multiple, um, courses of action, which were turned down by the, the chief, um, the country team turned it down. It wasn't the agency. It wasn't, it was the state department. Uh, at the time, because Ambassador Stevens was killed, they had a, a charge that was in charge temporarily. Uh, his name was uh, Alexander Pope, and he turned it down because of the p- political climate. I mean, verbatim, it said, we are not going to do this because of the political climate. We can't afford it politically. And so we did nothing. Um, that, to me, um, was a very clear indication of my path moving forward to the military. And I came back from that rotation, and I think I was out of the army within the next three weeks. No way. I mean, um, uh, the agency recruited me when I was downrange because I had just finished my in 2012. That same year, I had just finished my bachelor's degree, which is a prerequisite to become a blue badger, a full-time employee uh, for OGA. And I, I started the process. When I got back, I got out to to transition into uh, one still, you know. Uh, nickel and diming my my uh, retirement through the special forces reserve, but also allowing myself to transition to work for OGA full time. No kidding, and that's what you did. So you went through the process. You did the did the polys, did the all that stuff. Did and did you go to the farm at that point? Yeah. So I so here's what happened is <laughs> I don't know if you remember this time period, but that was the, when the sequester happened. Okay. Yeah, I remember. Left the military three phases into a six phase process and they stopped hiring anybody. And they basically said, they said to me, Hey, you know, we're running a hiring freeze. We're going to see how this unfolds. It was a a highly charged political climate. And so what they said to me um, is, Hey, we can send you down range and you could be a, a, you know, a GRS guy. And and just for your listeners, um, I am very security minded. And I, I had to go to the office to get basically cleared to be able to say that I was a GRS guy. Now, the, 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 the classified elements of that or the details in my relationships, in the program, the program itself, et cetera. But, yeah, I, I, I went as an independent contractor, as a GRS guy, and in the interim and went downrange immediately and started serving all over the world. And when it, when it, when it got cleared up, I had an option and the option was you could go straight um, back to, I mean, I had been to the farm for the programs for the, uh, for the, the job that I was in. Actually, I went through a whole bunch of training, which is more than I thought existed. And um, they said, Hey, uh, we can go ahead and migrate you now. Well, when they went to migrate me, I think it was three or four rotations in and the place that I was located at, I had seen, paramilitary operations officers have a hard time about it. I mean, they had a very difficult, and again, this is a political climate thing. This is not operation. These guys wanted to do their jobs, but because of the political climate, they weren't allowed to do their jobs. So I I came to a juncture and I said, ah, let me hold off for a bit. And I kind of stalemated and did a few more rotations. I actually, at the time I was in Pakistan 
with uh, Ryan Owens' brother. And I, I won't say his name because he's still serving. But Ryan Owens was a, uh, a SEAL Team 6 guy that was killed at a hostage rescue. Um, uh, it tragically killed, but courageously killed in rescuing a hostage that survived. And when, when he was killed, I was with his brother, and I came to a, I call these junctures, right? I came to a crossroad where I had decisions to make. I was, I was at a point where I wanted to have a family, but knew in my OGA work that I would never have family, except for the family that I deployed with. I was coming back from my OGA rotations and immediately rotating at the time as a Sergeant Major, because I got promoted Sergeant Major, I was, I was going to Africa and then coming back and then spending a couple days home and then going back to Africa or some crap hole in the Middle East. And then I realized I won't have a life. And at that time in Pakistan, this is, you know, with combined war, this is 14, 15 rotations. And I'm like, man, I want to start something different. And the Rhino's brother, who was my riding partner in GRS, helped me come up with some ideas. And that's where I started my company, Phil Crasser. That is awesome. Yeah, it's great when you know. Like I knew when I'm back from that last Iraq deployment, I never thought about anything other than training for war than being the best combat leader I could possibly be. Then I get back from that deployment, take a breath, realize, okay, I'm an 04 now, and uh, this is the last time I'll tactically maneuver guys on the battlefield. Now if I come back, it says eventually after a staff job, you come back as a as a SEAL team commander, which means you're like a SEAL team manager in real life, uh, and you're back there in the talk and you're allocating assets and things like that, but you're not out there doing the job, kicking the doors with the guys, that sort of thing. So it's very clear, I'm back, taking a breath, family needs me, time to move on. Mike Ritland. Mike is a former Navy SEAL, New York Times bestselling author, host of the Mike Drop podcast, and a sought after expert in the world of multi-purpose canine training. Here's part of his story. Where were you when you when you first heard about SEALs? Like, what did you uh, were you always focused on going into the military, and then you found out about SEALs, or were you uh, just kind of wandering and then found SEALs? What what came first? Uh, I mean, so for me, the like I was really inspired by both my grandfathers. Uh, my dad's dad was in the army in World War II, and my mom's dad was in the Navy, and uh, you know, just kind of hearing some of the stories that they had. Growing up, I was always, I would say, maybe a little, <clears throat> a little above and beyond what most kids were like from a patriotism and just being in, into military history and American history, specifically the World War II time period. And, and I've just always been really fascinated and kind of from a romanticized standpoint, enamored by that, that time period and that generation. And so, um, you know, I had thoughts of wanting to, to serve even like in kindergarten uh, when they ask what you want to do. Uh, you know, when you grow up type thing, I had uh, a naval aviator as, as a kindergartner, you know, that's when Top Gun was real big. And, and uh, so, I, you know, I wanted to be a pilot. And then as I got a little older, I wanted to be a little more uh, ninja, ninja like or what have you. And, and uh, so my mom actually, uh, well, my, my best friend and I at the time decided we were going to join the army and be rangers. You know, we used to camp and hike and shoot and get into trouble together. And uh, her recommendation was, you know, you're, you're, grandpa was in the Navy. Why don't you join the Navy instead of being in the army? And, you know, thinking that I'd be on a ship and and not be, uh, you know, kind of in the weeds, so to speak. And, uh, of course I, I ended up doing the same, same thing that the Rangers do anyway, as far as she's concerned, you know? So, um, but you know, it obviously all worked out. It, it wasn't really until I'd say like my sophomore year, I read a, an article, uh, in popular mechanics that kind of outlined, 
buds and the SEAL teams and showed weapons they use, missions that, you know, type of missions they'd, they'd go on their history. And it was a pretty kind of all encompassing 101 uh, article. Actually, uh, I have the, uh, that issue still, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so that kind of kicked it off in the movie Navy SEALs, the book road warrior, uh, you know, kind of all the standard, our generation influences that, that played a, an integral role in, in, uh, you know, the design behind wanting to go in and, and then really my junior and senior year, I was pretty laser focused from a, from a workout and training standpoint and nutrition standpoint. And I mean, that was a hundred percent what I was focused on, <laughs> on doing it. And, uh, and joined, uh, I, I graduated high school at 17 and then joined, uh, you know, the delayed entry program. And I uh, had to wait till I turned 18 late, <laughs> late in the summer, uh, to ultimately <laughs> go to boot camp right after that. I went to uh, intelligence specialist day school, um, which I, I think is where we, we first I. met maybe. Yeah. yeah. I think, were you uh, just coming you, in as I was leaving? Is that how that, how that was? It, yeah. Because you, uh, you were in two thirteen, right? Yep. Exactly. Yeah, and I was in, and I was in two fourteen. So, like, yeah, you you were getting ready to go to buds when I showed up <laughs> in A school. I was like, man, he's, you know, he's one of the guys you and uh, Herman and uh, you know a couple a couple other guys yeah. that, that ended up uh, going a little head. Yeah, yeah. Obi so, and Ryan Dick, and yeah, we had a great uh, yeah. we had a great little crew there. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, yeah, went went to the same same place and uh, got got out there right after you did, and uh, you know, kind of the same same type of uh, history after that, but I obviously didn't, didn't go get my, uh, my commission the way some of us did. Yeah. Did, uh, was that popular mechanics magazine. Did that one have the, uh, the DPV, the desert patrol vehicle, like the dune buggy. Was that one in there? Yeah. Is that the article? Yeah. yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, I mean, for, for me growing up in you know, BFE, Iowa, like, you know, seeing this, I, you know, I, I grew up competitively swimming, so I was, I was pretty strong and comfortable in the water. I, I had toyed with the notion of going to college. I had a couple of partial scholarships to some smaller schools in Iowa. And, uh, you know, so that was, you know, it lended itself more to, to what my background was anyway, but, you know, seeing all that kind of stuff uh, again in Iowa, where there's really nothing going on, <laughs> you know, reading that article was, was very inspiring and, uh, and really motivated me to, to, to join. Yeah. I remember the DPV, the desert patrol vehicle. So for those listening, if you saw the Delta force and saw those, uh, those, uh, desert patrol vehicles they had in that, they, I mean, they were similar, they were similar yeah. to those things. And then after, uh, you know, they look cool driving around the beach and maybe a little bit at Nyland. And then I think right after September 11th, they actually deployed, they brought the people back cause they were decommissioned. If I remember from team three, right before September 11th or a couple of years before, I think if memory serves. And then uh, well, they brought the guys back and they call them like the space Cowboys. They brought the guys back that had worked on them in the nineties and then yeah. took them to Afghanistan and they didn't really lend yeah. themselves to that terrain after all. Well, yeah. So the, the interesting thing is they, they look cool. Right. And, and uh, you know, when they were kind of at the height of their, their program, everybody thought they were pretty sexy, but uh, actually uh, one of the platoons with, um, <laughs> at team three, <clears throat> when we took down the manifold and meter, uh, the go plats, mm-hmm. uh, at, at the, the height or, or the kickoff of the Iraq war, you know, two nights before all of seal team three was in on that operation. And, uh, <coughs> the platoon I was, <coughs> excuse me, I was in with, uh, another platoon and a, and a, a SDV platoon. We took down the go plats and then the rest of the, of team three took down the manifold metering station and, and there was one platoon that had DPVs with them and, uh, they were useless. I mean, they got stuck and, 
And, uh, I mean, they were just more trouble than they were worth. They were really more of a liability than an asset. But so, so we did actually, team three did use DPVs to, at the start of the Iraq war and shit canned them pretty, pretty early. Cause they just didn't work worth a damn. But, yeah. Good, but, good uh, for recruiting purposes. Good for the, uh, Coronado 4th of July parade for all those years <laughs> in the nineties. Um, and good for the cover from the, in, in certain popular mechanics magazine. Um, but, uh, in, so in buds, you didn't have too much trouble with the, the swimming then you were, <laughs> Did you have trouble with anything or were you just well, uh, good to go on everything? Uh, well, I ended up getting rolled for swimming, uh, ironically, but, um, it, my, I guess some context on it is that my first day in, in greens was your, your guys's last day of indoc. Okay. So I had two, two months basically of pre-training before indoc started, which I just, you know, unlucky or, or timed it terribly or whatever. Like, uh, I, I wish I had showed up right before indoc started. Cause that two months of, of at that time, I don't know if you remember a guy reworts that, uh, would go out on the beach and, and beat the class until somebody quit every day, pretty much. Uh, it just, you know, it, it beat the hell out of me. And, uh, so I started, you know, kind of behind the power curve and already, already a bit beaten up, uh, you know, shin splint wise. And, and then, so <clears throat> I made it all the way to, uh, to six days before going to San Clemente Island with, with 214. And then I got rolled because when we were out at, uh, Laguna doing our land nav course, I pinched my sciatic nerve, uh, during the, the test. And, uh, <clears throat> and when I got back, I, I was injured to the point where I failed everything. Like I, I couldn't pass the run to swim and no course, you know, I could barely walk. And so swims just happened to be the first thing that I failed three of. And then, uh, and then I got rolled. So <laughs> luckily during that, that time, uh, the, the rollback program was not, uh, what it was when I was there as an instructor, uh, thank my lucky stars. I, I basically did nothing for six weeks. Like I slept yeah. 18 hours a day and ate 7,000 calories and, and did almost no physical training whatsoever, which for me was, was a saving grace because I, I basically just healed up came back and, uh, and then just crushed everything. Like I, I PR'd every, everything I, every physical activity from that point on and graduated no problem physically. So, um, it just, you know, was kind of a timing thing and, and, uh, everybody's body's different. It just, it hammered me to the point where I, I needed that time off, but yeah, but, uh, yeah. So that was it. Yeah. That PTRR going into, going into, I guess it was, it, did you still roll into PTR or whatever it was? Um, that worked for, for a lot of people get to rest for a second, heal those shin splints yeah. or whatever else, and then hop right back in. Um, yeah. but, yeah. uh, and then you go team three, right? Well, we, we meet in SQT really. I mean, we met earlier, but then we're yeah. actually going through training in SQT in the desert in Nyland doing those for the 14 mile ruck run in the middle of the, like the heat of August, yeah. um, where everybody like went down. Yeah. That was, that was I think there's like five of us that passed that whole, that thing. And then everyone, everyone's getting their IVs. And yeah. I think they, uh, rethought yeah. doing that in the middle of the August heat in Nyland where it's like 120 <clears throat> degrees out and throw on like a 40 pound pack and yeah. say, you know, run 14 miles essentially. Um, that, yeah, that was, that was a put out evolution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I mean, that whole, uh, that whole phase of training at that time of year is put out evolution. I mean, just doing IADs in, in broad daylight with all your stuff on is, uh, is crazy. But I mean, I look back at it now and I'm like, I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how we survived doing that stuff. I think about some of the guys that, you know, are, or, or were, you know, my age then still doing it. And I think, dude, there is no way that I, I could still do that job physically right now. Like there's no way. 
want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of The Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. Remy Adelecki. Remy is a former Navy SEAL, actor, filmmaker, entrepreneur, and author of Transformed. On Danger Close, he talks about having to go through Hell Week three times. Here's a clip. And then you make it to Buds. And then make it to Buds. Yeah, make it to Buds. And uh, that was eye-opening. Uh, it was, you know, it was a uh, kick in the nuts experience, the cold. I remember checking in in January. So I had that nice, so did I. Yep. Yeah, it was, uh, it was miserable. Uh, sucked at swimming. <laughs> uh, I, I, had, I, had, I, I didn't know before I went to Buds. I thought you just had to pass a 500 yard swim. Oh. I didn't know you had to do these time swims. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, Was it two uh, nautical mile ocean swims you do every yeah, nautical two, miles, man? Yeah. yeah. So I every week, every week, one a week. And at that time you just had to pass one in each phase. Oh really? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. They changed it. Um, the second time I was in Buzz, they changed it to 50%. You got to pass 50% of your time evolutions. But the first time was we passed one swim in, in first phase, one run, and one old course in first phase. Wow. And, and, and they changed it to 50. You got to pass at least 50% of your run swims and old courses. Oh, man. Interesting. I think ours was you'd fail one, you could make it up, I think, yeah. and they had a makeup, I think. And then, but if you failed two, then you went to a review board. And if they didn't like you, then you're out. If they did, you're like, hey, like, hey, work on your swims, work on your O course, work on your run, whatever, and try to try to keep you in. Um, yeah. But I think that, yeah, oh, that's wild. That's that's different. Yeah, man. Yeah, that was that was that was crazy. But I failed every swim. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I was I, I was swimming. Who is your swim buddy? Did they put you? Oh, I mean. Well. They do yeah, it by times, you know, you do like, what do you do? Some swim when you first get there and they yeah, time yeah, everybody yeah. and then they just take the fastest and then just kind of just go down the, the lines. Yeah. So are you guys the two bottom, like the two last? No, no, no. Actually I had a guy named Peterson. It's so funny. Cause Peterson was, you know, there's not many black dudes and buds, right? You go to buds, right? It's like three black dudes and buds. And I remember uh, my buds class. And I remember JJ is the black instructor. We, we, cause we used to always oh, be end up together on condition runs in some crazy way. And he's always you guys are like the three Negroes back together again. He was just say that all the time. And I remember when we when we did Peterson was my swim buddy. JJ was like, "What are you? Why are you two swimming together? Like, why are you swimming together?" But he was a better swimmer than I was. He was a way better swimmer than okay. I was. And uh, but yeah, I, I was swimming 120 minutes. Two mile time ocean swims, and you know the passing time was 85 minutes. 80, yeah, I was going to say like 85, 80, and I 75. Like, I think. Yeah, and instructors really, they wouldn't pull me because they were hoping that I would quit. And at the end of every swim, I was either hypothermic or borderline hypothermic. Yeah. And so, like, they thought I was going to quit at some point. <laughs> but I kept on showing up day after day. But I, I didn't have a problem with anything else, like drown pool training, not tying, 50-meter underwater swim. It was just those two-mile time ocean swims were my kryptonite. 
Yeah. And so fast forward, I get to um, I get to you know make it through the first two three weeks, three weeks of phase, and then get to Hell Week. Before I started Hell Week, I was spitting up blood, I had pneumonia in sight. But as a corpsman, I was already a corpsman. So I oh, before Hell Week, you're already spitting up. Yeah, I was already spitting up blood, and I hit it because I knew that. Right. I knew the signs and symptoms. I knew what was going on in my body, and and I felt like the crackles in my chest. So I knew that if I reported it to Bud's Medical, oh. that we pull and have to go through day one. And I was like, I've already went through three weeks of a freaking freezing cold winter first phase. I don't want to do that again. Oh. And so I, so I hit it, went into hell week. Uh, and then Tuesday of hell week, more to the story. I hit the wall. I mean, I, I mean, I, I literally hit the wall. I mean, it's, uh, again, it's all in the book, but pneumonia site, rhabdo, uh, my core temperature dropped to 88.7. Uh, almost Dang. Yeah, I, was down, I ended up in the Bible ICU for, for like a week and change. And, and yeah, it was, it was a bad situation. And you had to tell them, right? You had to just like self-diagnose. Yeah, well, well, what happened was they, there's a lot more to the story, but in short, after I, when I went tits up, um, they did a full-on check. And they did, they, I think they had the x-ray machine at Bud's Medical at the time, the quick one. And they did that and they saw my lungs and they was like, dude, this guy's lungs are shredded wheat, shredded wheat. And I was spitting up jello, like jello, it was like thick jello. Oh. And that's when they rushed me from Bud's medical at that, because this was, I think this was during base tour. So then they rushed me from base tour, Bud's medical, Bud's medical. I think they did an x-ray, a quick exam. And then it went from there to Bob And I was there, you know, I was there for, for a while, man. Um, yeah, that's pretty serious. Yeah. And I'll never forget you, like, after I got released from the hospital, went back to Buzz. I was like, oh man, I hope that they're going to, they're going to roll me forward. <laughs> I know. I love how you write that in the book. You're like hoping they yeah. roll you forward. Cause sometimes uh, they do that. If you make it to, I don't know, Thursday like Wednesday night something night like that. Yeah. And Master Chief Hoffman came in. He's like, that's, that's what I'm talking about, man. God, let's go to the diet. That's what we look for. See what they're going to go into their day. And they let's see, keep going. He's like, I'm glad you didn't quit. Cause the instructor thought I was thinking. So he's like, I'm glad you didn't quit. And then uh, and you're like, oh man, he's gonna roll me forward. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> and then, and then, but he stopped, and I was like, all right, he's coming. See, she forward and started talking. I was like, he's gonna tell me to roll forward. He's like, he's like, yeah, man, great job. Glad you didn't quit. And then he was like, because a guy died, and the reason why they, they came and talked because because uh, veteran Rob veteran died in front of me in my class. Yeah, during the conditional run. So like that class, like I did two five zero. And so, um, so we, they already had a Bud's fatality and I think everybody was nervous. And I think Bud's medical was under a lot of scrutiny after that, because like, they were like, yo, you almost died. Uh, and as a matter of fact, a kid just died like two weeks ago from sight. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, so CG4 was like, uh, he was like, yeah, dude, did a great job. But, uh, that's our day one all over again. I was like, oh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, man, started day one all over again. But you know, the cool thing was, I was in Bud's with a two five zero. Was a Mikey Monsoor was in my boat crew. Metal Wangler, great dude. Um, uh, Workman, you know, Extortion Seventeen, great dude. He was in my boat crew. You know, Ryan Joe, you know, was uh, was in two five zero, great dude. You know, so, so it's like, you know, it sucks. And you know, but I got to meet so many guys being in different classes. Now I rolled into two five one, and who was my, my boat crew? Mark Lee. You know what I mean? Wow. And uh, so so I got to, you know, be in buds with some dudes who went on to become legends and uh, made it through Hell Week, went through first phase again, made it through Hell Week, 
right after I finished home, we got double rope with swims because I still had a pass in the swims. Got got through um got got through rollback land, went to dive phase, ended up failing my first two swims in dive phase, and it fell uh, a test in pool week and got performance drops. Pool and, comp was uh, pool comp, is that right? Uh, the tread. Oh, the tread then, okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh that was a real that was a that, I needed that to happen. I really, really needed that to happen to me because I, you know, back to that that hip hop pride, you know, verbose type demeanor that comes from the culture. Um, I kind of very prideful, especially after I made it through Hell Week, because in my mind, I was like, here's this guy. Here I am. I made it from Africa to the Bronx, sold drugs in the Bronx, you know, evaded going to jail, made it into the Navy, made it in the SEAL training, made it through Hell Week. Nobody can't tell me anything. In my mind, like, I knew absolutely everything. And that's, that was dangerous. And I needed to be humble. And, you know, during the weekends when instructors would come and work with guys and stuff, I was too busy partying at the gas land district because I thought I had already arrived that I wouldn't show up. And that was my downfall. And I remember going after I failed, you know, the last tread, I remember going to my ARB board and um, and the instructors were like, hey, do you know why we're dropping you? And do you have anything to say? And I said, absolutely. You know, I you know, this is my fault. That was the first time in my adult life I took responsibility for my actions. Wow. Um, because I had always blamed everybody for everything. It was never my fault. It was always this person's fault. It was always the system. It was always, it was always something. And, and, and that was the first time in my life I freaking raised my chin and I said, it was me, dude. Like I screwed up. Like, and, and I'm gonna go pay the man. And I hope that I get a chance to come back at some point. And so um uh, you know, that's where the last I coined up the phrase, you know, failure is only a failure if you don't learn from it, but if you learn from it, it's a lesson. Mm-hmm. And uh, the lesson that I got out of that failure was, you know, one, never show up to anything uh, unprepared, and, and two, walk in humility, especially when you become successful or achieve just some level of success. Because if you don't walk in humility, you're going to get crushed. Pride will eventually find its way to you and crush you, and you will pay the man. And so, you know, Day after I got dropped from Buds, I was in the pool. Um, I didn't know if I was going to get a chance to go to Buds. I was going, I was going to first million division, and uh, you know there was a guy in my Buds class, um, and a few guys who were in Buds around the same time as me, who you know who were corpsmen, and they either got dropped or quit, and they went to first million division and got killed. So I didn't know if I was going to get a chance to, to to go back, but I just knew that if I had that chance, I would earn it. And, uh, you know, just to fast forward, I got that chance. You know, I went to first running division. You know, I was there for like a year and a year and, and change. And, you know, my LPO at first running division ended up becoming the command career counselor. So he went from being in charge of like 12 corpsmen to being in charge of like 800 corpsmen. And so when he knew my work ethic, he knew, you know, he knew what I wanted. So he talked to the command master chief at first marine division. It was like, hey, this guy... You know, he made his diet phase of buds and he's hungry. He's, you know, he's has great evals. He wants to get back. You know, can we let him go early? And uh, the command master was like, if he signs a page 13 that says if he quits or doesn't make it, that he's going to come back and do three years and or do two deployments, then I'll, then I'll let him go to buds. And I bet on myself. I was just like, you know what, dude? <laughs> all my, all chips in. You yeah. Know? I made it. And uh, I went back and, went through 
first phase again, third time, went to hell again, made it through. We went to dive phase, made it through, went to, you know, third phase, made it through. And, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah. Dude, not many people have gone through three hell weeks. There's a few people that have done two, you know, yeah. still not, still not, not a lot. There can't be. How many people have done three hell weeks? I don't know, but I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recommend it one bit. Oh, you know, man. In my kneecaps, in my neck. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Links to the full episodes and the books can be found in show notes. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. Officialjackcar.com is the website. You can go sign up for the newsletter there and click on shop for the merch. And until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.